What's going to happen is human beings are going to destroy their own world. No one has actually predicted what the world will look like. Like no one knows what's coming around the corner. It could be a lot of different things, but we are aware that endings are possible. I spent uh, almost 14 years reading the Bible with a group of people every Thursday night here in Woodstock. And uh, what we came to ultimately was an understanding that the Bible was like the world's longest literary thought experiment. I am of the uh, opinion that all of these holy books that we've had, you know, there's wisdom in them, but they're also human constructions. Like I mean, we can look at the historicity right. of all of these books, even the Buddha's own teachings, there's a history to that. When I was a Zen Buddhist monk in the 1980s at the monastery, who were up in the middle of the night roaming around the lake into the graveyard. I mean, at nighttime, the only illumination in the monastery was uh, were candles. And so you would wander around the graveyard in your Zen Buddhist monastery, and then, so you're not and you're not a vampire. Just I won't have that on the record. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Hello, everyone. This is Scott Carney from Scott Carney Investigates, and I am like super excited to talk to Clark Strand because I'm sort of fanboying here because I just read his book, Waking Up to the Dark. Uh, about, you know, you know, I'm writing this book on napping and why napping is a good thing and we should all nap. And then I got heavily looking into dreams and it sent me down this rabbit hole where I was wondering what is up with our, our sort of hyper lit reality. And I figured I had to get Clark Strand on the phone. Uh, he is a former senior editor uh, at Tricycle Magazine, which is a Buddhist magazine, which uh, you know, I, I started reading back when I was in college, and I guess he was probably the editor there uh, when I was reading <laughs> uh, it in college. And uh, he, he's had, you know, he lives in Woodstock, New York. He has had a, an amazing life as a as a Buddhist monk, uh, and uh, and and I believe also in the Christian tradition as well. And we're going to talk about darkness because Clark Strand. Well, he's sort of a dark guy in a way that you may not uh, usually think of that phrase. We live in a world, as you as you mentioned, you know, this was in the '60s, and you know, there was less lighting, like literal, just light bulbs, uh, in the right. '60s than there are now. And you know, you go back, you know, 80 years before that, and there were no light bulbs anywhere. Like, right. it, and and it's interesting to you know, one of the things you bring out in your book uh, so well is that we live in an era where uh, you know, we're going through the, you know, we, we always talk about the technological changes of the internet, right. of right. automobiles, of, of airplanes and all that. But you're like, no, but also the light bulb, man. Like uh, uh, Thomas Edison, who was famous for hating sleep, like he was like a constant, <laughs> uh, you know, he said he apparently could survive on like four hours of sleep and maybe genetically right. he was fine with that. Um, you know, wrote in his autobiography that, that you know, People who who sleep too much are just lazy, and you know, you people who don't you know aren't able to keep the lights on are, uh, are you know just intellectually inferior and unproductive. And he like right. ushered in this enormous change into the world, and right. and usually when we think about technological change, we. Um, we, we, we start off with a little fear about it. We're like, oh no, this is going to be really bad for us. And people said that about the light bulb. And then we just get yeah. over it. What can, you, what can you say? Some of the smartest, most successful people have the worst character. So uh, Edison, you know, Edison's invention was really, I think I described it in Waking Up the Dark as the, you know, the light bulb was like the conquistador, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was uh, uh, empowered by, by modern 
uh, civilization to vanquish the darkness, right? Which it did. Uh, it vanquish or reform the darkness, you know, by bringing it to bring it to heal. Um, you know, I by the throughout my life from the you know 1950s through I want to say like maybe the uh, early 1990s. Um, I guess I really just uh, assumed that maybe I was made a little differently than other people. And uh, certainly uh, there were no other monks, for instance, when I was a Zen Buddhist monk in the 19, uh, late 1980s at the monastery who were up in the middle of the night and roaming around the lake into the graveyard. Mm -hmm. So even there, you know, where you had people who are of a spiritual bent and we're living basically off the grid. I mean, at nighttime, the only illumination in the monastery uh, was uh, were candles. Was this and in Japan? Am I, am I right that you were? You were... This, was in, this was in America okay. in the uh, uh, in the Catskill Mountains, in a very remote area of the Catskill Mountains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, and so you would wander around the graveyard in your Zen Buddhist no, monastery. No, and then, so you're not, no. and you're not a vampire. Just, I won't have that on the record. No, no I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, and the monastery itself is very remote. I mean, I think the nearest light bulb is probably, you know, four or five miles away. Mm. So, uh, so this is a very dark sort of place, but even there, I, you know, I, I felt kind of eccentric, but then I want to say right around 1992 or 1993, uh, I read, uh, an article in the New York Times that referenced a sleep study at the National mm -hmm. Institutes of Health uh, by a man named Thomas Ware. Now, this was the guy who... I thought it was Robert Ware. Is that Ro isn't it Robert Ware? There, I think there is a Robert Ware, but this particular uh, uh, psychobiologist is named Thomas Ware. Okay. And uh, he was a psychobiologist, and he... Uh, it was the guy who basically discovered seasonal affective disorder. He did a lot of research into circadian rhythms and he had a question and his question was, uh, did uh, pre-modern human beings and even prehistoric human beings, like going back into the upper paleolithic, did they sleep more? Did they mm -hmm. sleep better? Did they sleep differently? And he uh, uh, surmised or, or <clears throat> I guess uh, hypothesized and correctly it turns out, that given the relatively slow rate of change in the uh, human genome, more likely than not, human beings uh, were still encoded for the whatever pattern of sleep they had in the upper Paleolithic. Probably mm -hmm. that hadn't changed. But the only way to know for sure would be to take human beings off of light-assisted mm -hmm. wakefulness. Mm -hmm. and so what Ware did is he took his subjects in Bethesda, Maryland, off all forms of artificial illumination for a month. And it's a very famous study. Uh, it, for the first three weeks, basically all that happened was uh, his subjects were repaying what Ware called the national sleep debt, mm -hmm. right? Because Americans are chronically sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, they would sleep for maybe an hour or two longer every night. Mm -hmm. But at week three, a change happened in every subject. Mm -hmm. Now, if you know anything at all about scientific studies, uh, you know that to get 100% results in anything is pretty extraordinary. It's I mean, normally, suspicious, even. It, yeah, <laughs> you would say that there must be the result of experimental bias or something like that. But to get a result like this was stunning. Right. So what happened was everybody in the study began to, uh, they would lie in bed for a couple of hours, you know, after the sun went down, and then they would promptly fall asleep. They would sleep for four hours 
wake for two hours, and then sleep for four hours more. And this happened with every mm-hmm. subject in the study, mm-hmm. like and did clockwork. They, and they also did often took naps in the afternoon, right? Like the, the sleep schedule actually changed dramatically overall. Right, overall. Yeah, they, they were there. You know, it was basically a recalibration, I think, mm-hmm. of, of uh, you know, human psychobiology, right, mm-hmm. that was taking place because mm-hmm. really light is sort of the master switch for all hormone production. And so if you mm-hmm. uh, reset that going back to formula, as it were, and just, you know, rising with the sun and, and, and turning in mm-hmm. uh, shortly after dusk, then a lot of changes happen. So, yes, I'm sure that's true. What happened was, you know, Ware was, of course, obviously very curious about this. He wanted to know what was happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he hooked them up to monitors. He discovered that his subjects were neither completely awake nor completely asleep, but seemed to be occupying a state of mind that had its own endocrinology. Yeah. It was basically a a thing unto itself. And this was like, this was my, like, the thing in your book, which fascinated me absolutely the most, right? We have these alert stages that we live in throughout the yeah. day. It's the lit, active, focused, you know, what we're doing right now. The people listening to this podcast yeah. are probably focused and doing something right now. Yeah. And then we think of sleep pejoratively as unconsciousness, right. as right. as an inactive state, and, which right. is actually not true because dreams are actually quite active, but we can get into that later. But yeah. it's what you call in the book, I believe, the hour of the wolf. And I think you also call it the hour of God. And there's a couple other names for this. But this is right. an intermediate state of consciousness that we inhabit when and that we usually don't like right in the modern world. In the yeah. modern world, we sit there. We're like, oh, man, I'm thinking about my taxes. And like, what did that girl say right. to me? Am I fat? Right. Like, whatever right. it is. But you're yeah. saying something different. You're saying the hour of the wolf is something productive, is something yeah. maybe vital. Well, uh, the hour of the wolf was a term that I uh, took from uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman's psychological thriller, right? But it's a term that's been used uh, in the modern uh, age to refer to the hour or two uh, late in the night, you know, before dawn, but basically the, the, the hour between dark uh, and dawn when human beings feel that they're most vulnerable, modern human beings, that is, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when, you know, special forces are taught to attack because uh, human beings are at their, you know, uh, most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the time when nightmares are more likely to seem real. Mm-hmm. It's the time when people believe most babies to be born. It's not actually true. And most people die. The statistics is, you know, a, a, a belief that is also not supported by statistics. Well, it's hard to know uh, now since most ladies get C-sections. So it's, it's a whole different thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but it is true. I think that most babies pre and were being made uh, mm-hmm. during that hour in pre-modern times because sure. people would all wake up uh, for this gap hour in the middle of the night. So Ware became fascinated with this. He tried to figure out what was going on. He interviewed his subjects and they said uh, that they had never felt so much peace in their lives, right? Mm-hmm. This was that they did not experience it as the hour of, wolf, of the wolf. Mm-hmm. They experienced what I later came to think of as the hour of God. Yeah. Because they were they were in this incredibly uh, peaceful uh, state of mind. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ware looked into the uh, endocrinology of this, and he discovered that what was happening was that the hormone prolactin, yes. which is the hormone that lets mm-hmm. down in nursing mothers, 
it's the, uh, or, you know, it's the, or, or I'm sorry, it's the hormone that elevates the nursing mothers when their milk lets down mm-hmm. and when they are nursing. It's the same hormone that keeps birds peaceful uh, when they are roosting on their eggs, mm-hmm. right? And it's the hormone that keeps our body still uh, and restful while we're asleep. Yeah. Well, so normally what happens is if you wake in the middle of the night in, a, in, in modern society, right, where we're, our, our nights are bookended very tightly on either end by artificial illumination and by, you know, modern uh, 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 styles of living that involve, uh, you know, eight-hour work weeks and eight-hour sleep nights, right? Mm-hmm. When you wake up in the middle of the night, you don't feel that peace because your prolactin levels automatically dr- uh, drop. Right. What we're discovered was that if you gave even modern human beings the full spectrum of darkness to work with, what would happen would be that they would fall asleep for four hours, wake for two hours, mm-hmm. during which their prolactin levels mm-hmm. remained at sleep level. Oh, wow. So that meant basically that people felt a profound peace in their bodies, like a kind of a bliss almost. It's interesting. And in, even in, though their minds were technically awake. In the world that we live in today, right? Uh, it, you know, uh, if you look at sort of the, the top neuroscientists and the bro scientists and the athletic whatevers, like we talk about dopamine, we talk about testosterone, we talk about these action-oriented chemicals and how to optimize them to make you right. like the fit Superman that we all want to be, I guess. And and what I loved about your book and, and the fact that, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we have these other hormones that also are vital and they are totally out of whack because we are out of whack with nature. And prolactin is, it's like, you know, it's, it's the nurture, it's the recovery, it's the oxytocin, it's the introspection yeah. hormone. And, and, and sometimes- They call it the attachment hormone actually, because, uh, you know, it's been linked to uh, uh, the experience of bonding between, mm-hmm. not, not only between mothers and infants, but between fathers too, because fathers who, who watch uh, a, a woman nursing a baby will also experience elevated levels of prolactin, right? It keeps everybody calm and still. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's funny, you know, we have this lens in the world. Um, and I, and, and I'm guessing that this is, you know, when you talk about prolactin, you, um, you know, it's a good scientific explanation for things like, you know, it's a language right. that we in the West like, right. Oh, there's prolactin problems. And, 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 but the reality is, I, and I think as I read your book and we, you know, I'm going to put words in your mouth perhaps, but like the, the thing is that we are sort of in an evolutionary mismatch because of our modern world for an, in a number of ways, right? We, it's, yeah. we don't experience seasons, really. We live in an eternal summer where, right. where you know, usually depending on the hemisphere you're on, you have these huge dips. You know, there's an equinox was important, right? The solstice right. was important. Right. And, and now it's like sort of a news blip. <laughs> oh, look, the solstice is coming. Huh, funny. And, yeah, right. and, 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 you know, as we get into darkness, like these mental states, which I have found, you know, interesting reading your book was, was a way that I started thinking about, you know, when I lie awake at night and my mind goes ruminating, um, I started to sort of think about actually that time in a different way. I'd be like, look, this ruminations is actually can be productive. And one of the reasons why we have so much anxiety about, about that moment is because we've been forced into this work schedule 
that right. that fixes us into an eight-hour productive Edisonian um, lifestyle, and right. that if we and and we also hate naps. Like the book I'm writing is about napping, right? And we're like, oh, napping yeah. is, is lazy. But the yeah. thing is, is, like you discard right. all of that and there and and get your body back into a place where it can be caring, it can be regenerative, it can be more natural. Right. So in in the book, you had uh, uh, here's the question, right? In the book, you said. Um, you know, you, you basically sort of like tried to put darkness back into your life, but you also said you don't expect your readers to be essentially, you know, to actually get rid of, of, you know, turn off their lights at sundown. So how do we integrate this into live, into our lives? Right. So, so there are a couple of answers to that question. It's not that I didn't expect people to actually do that, right. To, to, uh, you know, basically respond to what I call the, the, the dark manifesto, right? And to, to actually, uh, you know, trigger a kind of a revolution, modern revolution in, uh, in human consciousness, or, or rather a, uh, a reversion to an older style of human consciousness that, that in light of civilization would, would be taken as a revolution. It wasn't so much that I didn't expect them to do that. I just thought that, uh, you know, modern human beings are so addicted to light, probably they wouldn't be able to do so on their own. Mm-hmm. I do believe that going forward, uh, conditions are not going to be exactly uh, favorable for uh, a hyperlit uh, world, say a hundred years or so from now. We're, we're not we're not looking at any kind of a scenario uh, that would uh, result in, in what, you know whatever the techno narcissists will try to tell you. We're not looking at any scenario that's going to result in more energy and more illumination, right? Yeah, or that's, that's what's coming poverty. down the, the pipeline for sure. No, no, the agricultural, you know, uh, the, the the drastic fall in agricultural product, uh, production over the next hundred years due to climatological factors, species extinction, and you know, a host of other factors. Also, mm. the fact that you know we, we're not going to be able to continue to use fossil fuels and. Uh, petroleum uh, fertilizer is what allows us to have so many people on the planet currently as Correct. it is. Mm-hmm. But none of those things are are, are going to allow uh, agricultural production to remain at anything like its current levels. So we're going to be looking at far fewer people uh, and, and probably oh, a somewhat darker world. We're going to the doomsday scenario here, Clark. <laughs> well, no, it's not exactly doomsday. People, it's interesting because people conflate civilization with culture Mm-hmm. And because people can't imagine living any other way than the way we live now, mm-hmm. uh, they assume that the end of civilization means the end of human beings. They say, mm-hmm. well, that's it. It's all over. Yeah. But that's a, you know, it's a very, very anthropocentric way of thinking. And, and it's also uh, a paleo, what I call a paleo illiterate way of thinking. Because in fact, human beings have existed on this planet for hundreds of thousands of years. We have survived uh, asteroid strikes. We have survived super eruptions. Uh, We've survived wild climatological gyrations, ice ages, Mm. right? Long droughts. Uh, There were 500, I'm sorry, around 5,000 breeding pairs of human beings uh, 72,000 years ago who basically survived the Mount Toba super eruption. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those people adapted and learned how to uh, hunt with specialized uh, 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 spearheads and harpoon uh, harpoons made harpoon heads uh, uh, made of of bone uh, mm-hmm. that had, hadn't existed before then. Right? They evolved yeah. that particular uh, tool making 
uh, culture. The culture, music, art, uh, uh, dance, uh, good food, storytelling, these things have existed a long, long time before we had civilization. Right. Before, civilization. We had any, before we had any recordings of, uh, you know, right. I, I think that one of the things you talk about in your book, you know, you think about the, the word illumination. You, you know, right. we have illuminated uh, a certain amount of our history through history, through writing, through geological art, right. you know, artifacts that have shown up with right. the archaeological record. But it, it 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 existed way before that. Like we have not illuminated right. much about human yeah. history from you know yeah. five thousand years ago. You know, roughly. You know, ten thousand years yeah, ago. You know, nothing. Paleo illiterate. You know, and the the radical you know example of paleo illiteracy, of course, is the fundamentalist Christian Jew or or Muslim who mm -hmm. who you know retreats into the idea that the world's only a few thousand years old, right? <laughs> right. Uh, right. You know, to deny all of deep time, but in fact, we've existed for a long time, and we can have a deep future as well. Yeah. But I do think that that involves, uh, you know, going forth to meet the darkness rather than, to, you know, waiting for it to arrive. Yeah. If we're waiting for the hour of the wolf to come for us, that, that's a that's a pretty dark, grim, you know, sure. uh, Cormac McCarthy, the road kind of scenario. Right. Yeah. But to go forth to meet the darkness is different. That's yeah. not let, a let me read a passage. Of, I'd like to read a passage from your book that spoke to me. And then you know, we can, let, let's talk about it. There's actually a few that I'd like to go into here. Um, but, you know, on, on page um, 47, for those readers who uh, have the book with them and are examining, um, you say yeah. darkness is the one remaining revolutionary act. Changing the political order does not matter. Economies are all more or less alike. Governments and cultures rise and fall. The person who chooses to turn off the lights and lie awake in darkness embraces the truth of life beyond all of these. The only way back to the path we once traveled on as a species is through the darkness of deep time. That's heavy, man. That's 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 heavy. That's stuff. the dark I'm talking about. And go, going forth to meet that darkness is going forth to meet deep time. Mm -hmm. Now, what I discovered, uh, you know, even re really while I was writing the book, even before it was published, uh, was that a lot of people uh, craved the darkness. They craved what I, you know, they craved the experiences that I was writing about in the book, but then it didn't feel like they had any access to it. Mm -hmm. For instance, you know, just to, to take one gender specific example, you know, I get up and walk in the middle of the night. Most women don't feel like they can do that. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, even even women, friends of mine who, or, or people who, uh, women who wrote me after the book was published, even who live in relatively, uh, depopulated rural areas. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like they're they're taking their lives in their hands, going for a walk alone at night, and, and they may very well be right. Sure, uh, or they're so considered they immoral for doing it. You know, you have street walkers, right? Who the women who <laughs> well, the women? Oh, I mean, in some, in some repressive cultures, maybe. <laughs> so I don't I think in America, you know, that would that would present an issue. But yeah, uh, but it's just not safe for some people. Mm -hmm. Other people, you know, for, because of their work schedule and the fact that they have, you know, teenagers who are staying up late at night or whatever, they, they can't, you know, just turn off the lights at dusk and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and uh, live off the grid like that. So what I began to think of was um, the various different ways uh, of approaching the dark. There is the absolute dark, right, which is mm -hmm. to go without electricity after dusk. Right. And then there is the cultivated darkness. And I, this is where I think, you know, my book overlaps with yours, because mm -hmm. 
we're basically talking about napping and napping related states. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, you know, everything from, you know, going to a, you know, a therapist and lying on a couch and entering into a sort of a free association right. state, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, yoga, anything deep relaxation. For some people, it's knitting, mm-hmm. it's mindfulness, it's meditation. There are a lot of different modalities of what I call the cultivated dark. Mm-hmm. Basically, anything that unplugs you or disengages you from the uh, hyper-lit uh, culture that insists that there is, you know, insists on utility and efficiency before all else, mm-hmm. productivity, products, consumption, mm-hmm. right? Anything that sort of uh, pulls us momentarily out of, of uh, off of that treadmill, as it were, right? Right. Uh, allows us to relax and begin to find ways to reset our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that in the relative absence of artificial light, all Mm -hmm. the better. And so people will find, I think that if they do this, you know, they will, they will find themselves maybe turning off the lights a little earlier every night and, you know, becoming comfortable with the idea Mm -hmm. of just being in a, uh, a dark or dimly lit space. Yeah. It's interesting. um, Cause it's really about this continuum of consciousness, right? It's not really about the light. It is about the experience of being alive and conscious. And, and right. you know, we, we do think very binary, you know, you're awake, you're asleep and, and, and it's light and dark. These are, these are things that are related, but it's really, it's a, it's, it's a series of overlapping things. Like you said, you, you have naturally walked out in the darkness just habitually for your whole life. But most people yeah. will you know, in the modern world, well, if they go on a walk in the darkness, they'll want a streetlight or a flashlight or a headlight or a, a, a you know, yeah. something right. that, that, right. that pushes it, like pushes that, that encompassing thing away from them, the, the envelopment yeah. right. of darkness. And yeah. yet if we, you know, if you just go out for a walk at night and don't bring that stuff, you actually find that you can navigate the world pretty well. You know, not oh, perfectly, yeah. pretty well. There are all kinds of little tricks you discover that our ancestors knew. Like, for instance, if you go outside to walk in the dark, there's, you know, most places that people live today, there's, you know, ambient light at, uh, at night of some form or another, if only the starlight. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you're walking, for instance, on a road and you lower your eyes to about a 90 degree level so that you're mm-hmm. looking at an area about 10 or 12 feet before you, mm-hmm. you'll find that because of the structure of the human eye, that it feels like there's a light glowing right. at the horizon between you and the horizon mm-hmm. and that you can actually see things uh, between, you know, out, out of your sort of upper peripheral vision, mm-hmm. uh, you can see things the shapes. And so you can actually walk uh, without a flashlight at night, you know, unless you're in a very densely wooded area, uh, you know, where there really isn't any, um, right. you know, there's leaf cover and you can't see the ground. Yeah. Even you, then there are other senses you can use. Right. And you, you can actually, I found that in most cases I can see farther without a flashlight than with a flashlight. And, it, and, and I mean, oh, oh. see, and I see, I mean, see broadly because it's actually, you see with all of your senses, you see with mm-hmm. your, your sight and your smell and your, and your, well, well, what? Yeah. Let's stop there for a moment, because that's really interesting what you just said. I mean, that's so true. And it's true more just in the literal way. Right. Mm -hmm. But because of the way artificial illumination works, it illuminates a certain area and a certain thing. Mm -hmm. But it has the strange effect of making anything outside of that pool of light 
look darker, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. But this is also uh, metaphorically true as well. Uh, there was a man named John Staudenmeyer, who is a uh, Jesuit historian of technology. Mm-hmm. And he gave the Boardman lecture, I want to say probably 20, 25 years ago now. I can't remember exactly when, but it was a, an annual lecture series and he, on technology. And he gave one about artificial illumination. And, you know, it was a very, very interesting uh, talk, really uh, seminal to my way of thinking, because Staudenmeyer was one of the first people to really co- deeply connect mm-hmm. the loss of darkness in the modern world to loss of touch with the a spiritual or numinous dimension in, in right. the human spirit. But Staudenmeyer said that uh, the inherent bias of artificial illumination is the belief that everything can be made clear. Yes. This was a core idea. Mm-hmm. It is the inherent bias that everything can be made clear. Everything can be understood. Mm-hmm. Everything can be made an object of the human mind. Everything right. can be quantified. Everything can be described perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of time before we understand everything in the universe. That was right. That is the inherent bias mm-hmm. of artificial illumination. Mm-hmm. Uh, ancient peoples, even through the Middle Ages, people did not have this bias because so much of their uh, visual experience of the world uh, was that, you know, beyond their visual field, they couldn't see very far and couldn't see mm-hmm. very clearly. Mm-hmm. And in the absence of very close artificial illumination and, and you know, torches and candles didn't provide a great deal. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Or mirrors focus, focus from the sunlight into indoors, you know, various methods they had of providing light. Uh, even these really only illuminated a small portion right. of what they would have called reality. And they knew how limited it was. Right. And, and also with this is the idea that um, the knowledge of not being able to know things is a knowledge yeah. in itself. It's it's because you you know that you have your candle illuminated in a small little area and, and you right. don't know what's out there, but it is the reckoning with the unknown, which is a skill that we have lost. Uh, I mean, right. many of us, us right. have lost. That's right. I wanted to read another, know- I wanted to read another passage um, from your book because uh, I think it, I mean, it's deep, Again, it's dark because everything's dark in this in this uh, in this discussion, uh, and uh, I want to read it and then let's just talk about what this means. Hmm. Uh, this is uh, you know, um, for those of you following. It's page fifty-two. The dead are in the dark in numbers too vast for our ordinary consciousness to comprehend. Who are they? They are more than our lineage of direct biological ancestors, as numberless as those ancestors are, and they aren't just human. Every plant, animal, and insect alive on the planet today is linked to ancestral mothers and fathers without end. And every cell has ancestors too, even the mountains and valleys and deserts, the streams and the oceans have ancestors. Everything that exists now exists because of what has come before, but before doesn't mean gone. And then you go on from there and it's, 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 it's stark and it's awesome. And it's, and, and it's, it's weighty, right? It's, 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 we live in a, in a world where the past is in darkness and it is dead. And that dead is also our life. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that was uh, that's in a part of the book where I talk a lot bit about deep time mm-hmm. and uh, and also about the dead. Uh, you know, waking up to the dark is part of a trilogy of books. Uh, the first book is Waking Up to the Dark. The second is called The Way of the Rose, uh, which was written by uh, me and my wife, Perdita Fenn. And the third book, which is coming out, uh, I guess, in two months mm-hmm. uh, in early September, is Take Back the Magic. And that's mm-hmm. written uh, by Perdita alone. Mm-hmm. And the themes of the three books, if we were to sum them up in uh, in one word each, the first book is about the dark, waking up to the dark. The Way of the Rose is about the dirt uh, because, uh, you know, it is going back and looking at, you know, taking one uh, ancestral spiritual practice, the Catholic Rosary, mm-hmm. and tracing it to its Paleolithic origins mm-hmm. and its origins in the mystery uh, religions of the of the ancient world. Right. And the, uh, the, the final book, uh, Take Back the Magic, is about the dead. And so uh, all three books, you know, treat all three themes in them, but each one has a special emphasis. Yeah. But yeah, the uh, I think that we have in the modern world, we've lost touch with deep time. We've lost touch with the. Could we define what deep time is? Yeah. Deep time is uh, uh, ancestral time, basically. Uh, It is uh, time uh, so deep that all of human history could vanish in it and leave scarcely a ripple. Uh, you know, we humans, depending on who you talk to, humans have been more or less human for, you know, 70,000 years, 120,000 years, 300,000 years. But, you know, these dividing lines are largely kind of arbitrary. So if you start looking at hominids, mm-hmm. then we, we go back uh, even millions of years. And so, um uh, to to divorce ourselves willingly from that that past past uh, is again use that that term uh, that I coined is to become paleo illiterate right mm-hmm. is to live only in this brief bubble that we call mm-hmm. civilization mm-hmm. which is basically built in defiance yeah. of a planetary ecosystem right mm-hmm. I mean we built this thing atop uh, by you know using extractive processes of mining and uh, you know forced agriculture. We have built this this civilization, uh, you know, based on um, uh, resources that are are non renewable. Right. So it's just a matter of time before those play out, and you know, we, we enter a kind of an in game, uh, 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 you know, in game scenario. There are a lot of ways that could have happened for us. It's happened with mostly with fossil fuels and modern pollutants. So you are not what uh, we would call a techno futurist. You are not somebody who believes uh, that technology is going to come in and save the day with a new whiz bang solution. No, I'm I'm one of the few people who thought that Stephen Hawking was an amazingly brilliant person and somewhat of an idiot as a human being, right? <laughs> Because, uh, you know, he, he and a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, his fellows were constantly talking about how, well, we're going to need to leave Earth, right, and go someplace else. And I felt like, you know, I would, I would you know, read, read these uh, various articles and interviews with him about, you know, the, the, you know, the need basically to, you know, escape this planet because, uh, you know, we're, we're basically doomed if we want to try to live here. We should migrate to the stars or whatever. And I always thought, you know, did no one ever teach you any basic biology or were you just a born an astrophysicist from age five and never mm-hmm. studied anything else? Mm-hmm. Because 
there is no way we are everything about the human body right is is tooled to life on this planet yes we are one with life on this planet right. and we can't exist uh outside of this uh biosphere yeah. you know us we and the earth are one it's the idea and the idea that if you if you're going to migrate to some other planet you're going to have to take earth with you in order right. to survive Right. We, we have this idea that humans are exceptional in a, in a way and that we don't have we are not connected to the world and our environment. And we don't realize that we are the environment. We are that we we've come up from here. We are connected from here. And right. like our little blue dot, you know, maybe you could make Mars sort of Earth like maybe. I mean, you could you could have a technological explanation for how to do it, but it's not going to be better than Earth. Right. It's going to it's going to. Yeah pale in comparison to it's Earth. It's a little bit, you know, like when you when you grow up and you leave your parents' home, you know, it's only when you really realize what it was like, you know, mm-hmm. to, to have parents and to live at home. I mean, provided you have good nurturing parents, not everybody does, but if you have good nurturing parents, a lot of the work that they do for you to make your, your life livable and, you know, keep mm-hmm. you alive and healthy and happy uh, is sort of invisible. Right. Well, the planet's a lot like that, right? Right. You know, you can think in very, you know, sort of uh, uh, simplistic, you know, not simplistic, but we can think in terms of the ancient, um, uh, in terms of the ancient mystery cults, where they talked about the sun as the father and the earth as the mother. Right. And the interplay of these two forces, it turns out to be quite accurate from an ecological, environmental Mm -hmm. point of view. The only Mm -hmm. thing that really uh, enters, comes to the earth from, from beyond the earth to sustain and cause life and to regulate its patterns and cycles is the sun. Everything yeah. else is just here, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think human beings who tried to leave this planet would very quickly discover that they never knew what went into actually making human life possible. They would quickly learn that uh, that they were the recipients yes. of, of gifts and blessings mm-hmm. from every possible side mm-hmm. going back billions of years right and and that that's not just not possible to reproduce with technology well or if it is possible i mean i can you know i've read enough science fiction books that that that, and they all sort of point out that maybe this stuff is possible in various ways but it's going to be very Mm -hmm. different and in a way that you may not even conceive of as even human Right. You know, I don't think it's going to happen in the next hundred years. No, no, no. In the next hundred years, <laughs> so, we have a very, so um, I'm not, I'm not putting my, I'm not putting my money there. <laughs> yeah. You know, one other thing that I, I liked, um, and I'm, I'm not going to read this section, but it's, uh, uh, you know, you, you point out that in the Christian tradition, you know, we talk about Satan as the prince of darkness, but he also has the other name, right? The other name is Lucifer, which is the bringer of light. Um, right. and, and, uh, one, that's a great contradiction. The Christians covered all their bases, but on the other hand, the bringing of the light is, is, you know, Prometheus also brought, he brought fire. Right. And, and that right. was a good thing, but he was also this fallen person because of that. And we, right. we live in these, in this contradiction where we, we see progress and progress you know, there are benefits. I'm glad that I live in this day and age. Like, I think it's pretty awesome to live in this day and age. Right. Um, uh, but it comes at a cost and yeah. where the future goes, you know, what, you know, you had mentioned earlier that you see the future is a future of returning to darkness. And we are like a brief, essentially a match that has been lit 
and yeah. it's it's burning now but where yeah. does it look where do you think you know uh, where do you think that we're going to be in say 100 or 500 years well i don't you know no one really knows uh i don't know about 500 years it's hard for me to really think it through uh you know uh quite that far i i personally don't have much hope for the survival of large scale human institutions. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, the, the conditions that have favored the building of civilizations and empires uh, are, are, you know, reaching their, their natural conclusion. Mm. I do not believe uh, that it's going to be possible to, uh, to maintain anything uh, like the sort of, you know, global uh, networks and global, global power structures that exist today. And in fact, I'm not even sure that we're going to have anything 100 years from now resembling uh, what we would call a country today, even. Hmm. Uh, I don't think that human beings are going to be able to survive to the degree to which they try to preserve those institutions. I think those institutions are, are what's killing us. And I think that those institutions, uh, to the degree to which we try to maintain them, uh, will cause us to do greater harm to the environment and greater harm to ourselves. Interesting. I think at a certain point, there's a tipping point that comes where people look around mm -hmm. and they realize that the people they need to rely on to survive are the people they can see with their eyes Interesting. and hear with their ears and come into physical contact with with their hands, their bodies, mm. uh, the people that they need to survive are going to, people, going to be the people uh, in their local area that they have to uh, uh, collaborate with in order to mm. live. Now, I, I don't, I, it's not so much that I don't think we can go back to, uh, you know, like quote, a hunter gatherer uh, lifestyle. I, I don't, I don't know what's possible. Do species yeah. sometimes revert? Apparently in throughout uh, you know, evolutionary history, there have been species that uh, that went back to previous ways of living. There have even been human beings who chose civilization Absolutely. and then chose to yeah. forego civilization, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. There, there's uh, a, there's a really good book, and I want to think it's, um, now I can't remember the name, but the, the Brief History of Everything, basically. Right, uh, exactly. And, yeah. And so, so this has happened. So, so, but. It's, it's, so there's two, there's interesting, there's two different ways to think about what this future might look like. And both are right. very hard, right? One, right. Uh, the scenario you laid out is the dissolution of institutions right. to becoming, right. because we can only really interact with our small groups and rely on our small right. groups. And, but there's right. another way to conceive of it that, uh, that is also has a little more hope for large scale human civilization, which is that right. we see ourselves as part of a greater whole, right? We see mm -hmm. ourselves as in a sense cells in a super organism and we actually try to participate because our own individuality is not the focal point. And we would yeah. need to evolve to some degree as a species and have a very different mindset in order to preserve civilization by actually participating yeah. with the planet. And I think both, um, uh, if you don't do that, I think we end up exactly what, with what you're saying, very small, isolated yeah. tribalism, right. Right. Um, or we end yeah. up in a way that somehow our consciousness got a little bit more um, uh, resilient, <laughs> like ants in a colony, right? right? It's not the right. ant that matters, right. it's the colony that matters. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think 
I, I, you know, personally, I, I don't see uh, human beings, uh, you know, en masse mm -hmm. uh, experiencing, you know, what would amount to essentially a, a, a mass conversion of the whole species, like mm -hmm. within, you know, within a fairly limited period of time we have to, to do such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't personally sort of see that, that happening. That doesn't, doesn't, doesn't seem to be any precedent for it as far as I can tell. Yeah. I mean, it is true that human beings seem to have learned how to do agriculture all over the world pretty much at once yeah. uh, within a fairly short period of time. Mm -hmm. So I do think that uh, people can find uh, new ways to live, uh, but I think that those will probably be dictated by necessity uh, rather than uh, through any kind of in inner transformation. Sure. I think it's very easy. We, we live in a, uh, in a world that has been... Uh, where our minds have basically been sort of subtly restructured and yes. re recoded mm -hmm. uh, by, for lack of a better word, I will call religious or theological ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. This goes back maybe as, as long as four or 5,000 years. People began to, to think uh, theologically or religiously. But mm -hmm. this isn't what it seems like. Like theology means like the study of God, right? Right. But it's always really not been about that. Mm -hmm. uh, religious ways of thinking have always been about anthropocentrism. Mm -hmm. They have all been about the storytelling the, the re ape, re right? redefining yeah. uh, human life, putting human life at the top of everything. Mm -hmm. Like even Buddhism is, you know, sees human life as the most precious life, the only right. life where you could be right. become a Buddha, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, all religions are radically anthropocentric, with the yes. uh, with the exception of a few. Uh, uh, you know, re religious traditions or a few indigenous uh, traditions have yeah, sort a few of a more indigenous animistic. traditions mm -hmm. still exist that are more animistic, but but the organized religions are all profoundly anthropocentric. Yeah, and so um, uh, you know that that way of thinking is is going to play itself out. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think of the Bible, Bible is a good example. I spent a lot of a, a number of years reading the Bible very, very uh, closely oh, with a group of people here. Do you lose me? I you broke up for a second, but don't worry about oh, it. Okay. Uh, I spent um, I think almost fourteen years reading the uh, Bible with a group of people every Thursday night here in Woodstock. It was kind of a a think tank mm -hmm. is called the koans of the Bible. And we basically read uh, the scripture. Koans like, of the Bible. I love it. <laughs> then koans. Yeah, we read them. We didn't read them in a religious way. Mm -hmm. And we said we only had two rules. Uh, you got to question anything, but you didn't get to throw anything out. Like just because you didn't like something, you didn't get to pretend it, it wasn't there. You had to look at it. And so we had all different kinds of people come to this. We had... Mm -hmm. Uh, feminists, we had uh, witches, we had, you know, people with a strong ecological bent, we mm -hmm. had uh, practicing Jews and Christians and Catholics, and all kinds of people came to this group. Uh, and uh, what we came to ultimately was an understanding that the Bible was like the world's longest literary thought experiment. Huh. And it starts with the idea of human beings being given complete control over the ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? Having dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field and so forth and so on, sure. right? Sure, yeah. 
and being at the top of things, right? Mm-hmm. Being at the apex. Right. Every religion has its own version of this. Even Buddhism has its own version of this. Human supremacy. Right. Religions are based on the idea of human supremacy. In, in Buddhism, the Bible, even, even the gods, if you look at Mahayana yeah. Buddhism, even the gods are below the humans. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that, well, no, the, the, the gods are a little bit above the human beings, but it's a circle in Buddhism. So right. what goes around comes around. But the god can't doesn't have the opportunity to become enlightened in the same way the human does. Right. That's right. So so in that sense, yeah, that, in that sense, you're right. The human is where the where enlightenment is a possibility. So they're, they're, they're profoundly anthropocentric. So um, I'm trying to think what was my train of thought. The... Um, I lost it. What were we doing? Oh, man. Um, uh, that's what happens. <laughs> that's what happens when you get older. Well, um, I'll think of it in a second. Um, well, you know, oh, yeah. the Bible is a thought. So the Bible is a thought experiment. Mm. So the Bible asks the question. And again, if you're a, a true believer or you live in a biblical culture, or even if you live in a culture where you've rejected the Bible, you're still stuck inside this book. Right. Right? Western culture has been stuck inside of these texts, right? Mm-hmm. The Quran and the, mm-hmm. uh, the the Christian Bible and the uh, the Tanakh, right? Mm-hmm. For 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 millennia, mm-hmm. you can't see the plain obvious truth, which is that it, it is a thought experiment that says what happens if human beings are in control. And the answer is it begins in Genesis. And where does it end? It ends in Revelation mm-hmm. with the destruction of the earth. Mm-hmm. The end of Revelation, uh, a new world descends basically out of the heavens because this world has been destroyed by human mm-hmm. beings. Mm-hmm. So what it says is that, yeah, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen is human beings are going to destroy their own world. Yeah. By 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 well, declaring they have dominion over it. In that sense, it's the same conversation that we're having. I mean, I I am of the uh, opinion that all of these holy books that we've had, you know, there's wisdom in them, but they're also human constructions. Like I mean, we can look at the historicity right. of all of these books, even the Buddha's own teachings. There's a history to that, and yeah. they become palimpsests uh, for our own. Uh, fears and, and, and projections of what the world will look like. And no one has actually predicted what the world will look like. Like no one knows what's coming around the corner. It could be a lot of different things, but we are aware that endings are possible, right? We're all aware that that could be, um, emerging. We're living in the middle of a mass extinction right now. And, uh, you know, at the very least, you know, that, that, that may, uh, cause, more serious problems for us ultimately before climate change yeah. does, because uh, that radical loss of biodiversity, we don't really understand what it means, for instance, to have lost yeah. 30% of, uh, of, of the birds in North yeah. America in or a 50 year period. Or, but it's interesting when right. we, when we talk, even, even when we make a statement like that, and we're all, pro, I'm prone to those statements as well. When we think about that, it's still a really, interestingly anthrocentric way of looking at it. Because if we actually think about deep time, right? If we act, the earth is going to be fine. Like life is going to be fine. Like we would have to fuck things up in a way that is much bigger than we could. Like we'd have to get hit by the asteroid and the earth blows up for life to not exist. But instead what we're mourning is the end of the Anthropocene. 
it's, it's well, the, well the the end of human supremacy i think mm-hmm. is the end of this notion that human beings are in charge and human beings can can control everything and coming back to light that everything can be known right and that what can be known can be controlled ultimately mm-hmm. uh so so yeah i think um I do think that that human beings can uh, learn to to live in a way going forward uh, that, you know, like I said, I think given the state of the earth today, we can't live as human uh, as hunter gatherers. Uh, Even if our population were drastically reduced, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be reduced to the level uh, in the in the amount of time, uh, you know, that we're looking at where it would have to happen. Uh, it wouldn't be reduced to the scale where we could even live as hunter-gatherers in the Upper Paleolithic, right? I mean, the Upper Paleolithic, there were not a lot of human beings living on uh, on the land compared to uh, to how many there are now. So we're going to have to find other ways, uh, yeah. like uh, you know, small-scale horticulture, uh, community uh, gardening, community farming. Uh, we're going to have to find other ways to. And uh, I promise you, I promise you, dear listeners, that you are not going to be able to figure it out. Like it's something that's going to happen to us, not something that <laughs> we think it through. Like don't start your community garden thinking that's going to get you through the apocalypse. <laughs> I, I think human beings have forgot, you know, we, 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 we think we're in charge uh-huh. and uh, we're not very good at being in charge. I mean, yes, I suppose we are in charge, but, but that doesn't really typically end very well uh, for human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all you have to do is read Greek myth to see where that goes mm-hmm. or the Bible. You know, uh, but we are very adaptive, and I think human beings have forgotten uh, that uh, you know what what it means truly to adapt and to adapt to changing mm-hmm. circumstances and to adapt in the the face of uh, you know a near annihilation. Uh, you know, is, is something that human beings not only can do but have done many many times before. Mm-hmm. And you know, should we make it through this whatever limiting event, assuming that a limiting event happens? Assuming enough of us make it through, there there will be sort of new forms to show up and there will be new futures. And I, I don't think that we can conceive of them because they exist in that darkness that you've already spoken to. Because even when we project into the future, we're trying to get our flashlights out and shine it at something that we can never know. Um, you know, I, I there's so much more to talk to you about this. I think that we could riff on this for one of those three hour explorations. Uh, and, um, but I, I think that it would be, it, it, it's worthwhile for, you know, people to actually ingest your work. Cause it's really, really interesting. And there's, it's very multifaceted, multidimensional, and frankly new, like it, it's not, these are not thoughts that, um, that are right now out in the zeitgeist in sort of a real way. So I would, I, I highly suggest people to, to check out waking up to the dark. Um, I, especially, you know, some people just read like the first, like third of a book, you know, they, they pick up a book and they read a third. Well, I want to tell you people, luckily the book is only a third of a book long. It's only 110 <laughs> pages. So uh, it's not an enormous investment in, uh, in time to get through it. And even if you just read the first 30 pages, you're doing, it's still amazing. Um, and so uh, Clark Strand, I really appreciate you coming here. And if people want to find out more, um, where can they you know, locate your stuff? 
Well, thanks, uh, Scott. I appreciate it. It's been a wonderful conversation. If people want to contact me, I'm on Instagram and Facebook under Clark Strand. Uh, but uh, also, um, they can go to wayoftherose.org, wayoftherose.org. Uh, and that is the website for the community uh, that uh, my wife and I, my wife Perdita Finn and I founded. Uh, and it is a, you know, an international, non-religious, post-religious uh, rosary fellowship uh, that uh, uses the rosary as a sort of a trellis to, uh, to grow a spiritual community. That's the traditional, more or less traditional rosary, but uh, uh, we don't uh, treat it in a religious way. But our motto is ecology, not theology. And so uh, the prayers are used for building community. Uh, people pray for their heart's desire, which is really kind of the only antidote to uh, a civilization and a capitalist culture that wants to tell you what to desire, what you should desire, uh, what you should do, right? Yeah. So it's a way of sort of recalibrating, uh, you know, our souls uh, in community with one another. So you can reach out and, uh, you know, there are a lot of information about waking up to the dark, take back the magic, way of the rose. We have like, I want to say maybe 10 Zoom meetings a day. Oh, my uh, God. Members, what are you doing? Members that's, all over the world. That's well, the, we, don't, we don't run them. Oh, I, only, okay. I only run two, two meetings a week. I think I have two meetings and Perdita has two meetings. The others are run by members all over the world. Great. I mean, I was so we, on, have, we have the Rose group on Facebook, too, that you can join. I, I was about to say, it sounds like you just gave yourself a job, which is, is very against the, the <laughs> idea well, of what we're doing. It doesn't pay <laughs> it's all volunteer. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, thank you so much. And for everyone who's listening, uh, you know, you, if you want to support what we do here on this podcast and elsewhere, uh, you know, there's the, there's of course the Patreon and the, the things and, and, you know, the reviews and the likes and do the things that the internet people want, because apparently it's going to save us from civilizational collapse in some way, <laughs> I guess, uh, for, you know, Scott Carney investigates in Denver, Colorado, uh, thank you so much for being here and until next week.